Hello, welcome. You are listening to On Resistance Radio. We are a horizontal collective out of Los Angeles. Today, we are going to be discussing some recent events, reporting on some current events. I'm Jay. And I'm Bobby. Thank you for tuning in. So recently, uh, last night, we were receiving reports of a white supremacist shooting against black protesters in Minneapolis who had been staging something called the Fourth Precinct Shutdown. They were outside or organizing outside of the police department because of the murder of Jamar Clark. There have been two arrests made so far, and one person is still on the loose. This comes shortly after a black person was attacked at a Trump rally. And he stated after the attack that maybe he deserved to be rough around. You kind of see this as like a consistent thing with Trump as the candidate who is running as a fascist and a white supremacist, you know, as an open one. More so than I would say that the other white supremacist fascist candidates are. And, you know, and you're starting to see white supremacists feel more comfortable in their attacks. And the same thing, it didn't escalate to a level that it did on um, Monday night with the Black Lives Matter protesters in Minneapolis. But in um, Missouri on college campuses, we saw the white supremacists try to intimidate and threaten the black student protesters at Mizzou. What we're seeing is an escalation of the white reactionaries and who are very armed and who are also sanctioned by the state to continue to use the Second Amendment and threaten people and shoot people with it while, you know, other communities are put on this sort of, you know, must be peaceful hands up rhetoric train. We're seeing this constant exceptionalizing of white reactionaries and white terrorism and white supremacist terrorism. One of the recent headlines I saw kind of as a blowback towards like the fear-mongering and rhetoric and Islamophobia and racism that's coming out of all the anti-terror rhetoric was an article that said, majority of fatal attacks on U.S. soil carried out by white supremacists, not terrorists. And it was just like this exceptionalizing of saying that white supremacists are bad, but they're not to be considered terrorists. And it's this like narrative in the white media that basically if it's white-dominated, it can't possibly be terrorism. But what we're actually seeing is since colonialism, white domination and white supremacy has been enacted and structured through terrorism, through systematic terrorizing of peoples. So it's like this selective recognition of terror. And you know we're not seeing that these attacks on the Minneapolis protesters are being called terrorism, except by certain circles. Mainstream media is going to exceptionalize it if they even recognize that these attackers had white supremacist views. Uh, They're still not recognizing that that is embedded in a larger framework of U.S. white supremacist terrorism. And the attacks that happened, they aren't the first, that isn't like the first rock being thrown. The attack that people are responding to is that Jamar Clark was murdered by police and shot, and observers were saying he was shot while he was handcuffed. Um, He was 24 years old, and his family had to take him off life support because he was in critical condition and could no longer survive on his own. And it was ruled a homicide, so it was a murder, but because it was a police-enacted murder, we're not really seeing any movement, any release of footage. They're saying there was no footage. There was no official state footage in terms of body cams. But, you know, he was unarmed and handcuffed. And regardless of whatever 
police are alleging happened, like the police enacted the death penalty on this person and took him from a whole community and his family. So people have been organizing and protesting for 10 days straight since this happened. He died on Monday, November 16th. 41 people have been arrested for disrupting traffic and business as usual. And since there have been some people targeted in the media and the police narrative has been criminalizing the protesters, which completely set the stage for these white supremacists who started patrolling on their own, probably with the tacit approval or with collaboration with the police. Because one of the people that were tweeting was saying that they don't believe that a shooting wouldn't happen outside of a police precinct unless the police knew about it. And we're going to allow that to happen. And a lot of the on the ground reports were saying that police did nothing right when the shooting happened. They were mocking protesters. They maced protesters who were responding. All the pictures, you see a bunch of concerned community members surrounding people on the ground. You don't see any EMTs or any cops. They're not safety workers. You know, they're there also to enforce white supremacy. So to me, this is a retaliation. This is retaliation against the black community for organizing in support of Jamar Clark's family. And this is especially when it's important not to trust any of the police reports or the police narratives, because this is the police and white supremacists retaliating um, in defense of the police being held accountable for their terrorism. And it's clear to see the different reaction in the media and just also in the general public. Here in Los Angeles, when a police officer was murdered in Downey, it's something where the city stops. But yet, um, when someone's murdered by a police officer, there is no sort of same reaction. There's no sort of same vigil or, or rhetoric to say that blue lives don't matter in this country is kind of a lie because blue lives along with white lives are tend to be the only ones that matter. And we see that by when murders like these happen or when attempted murders like these happen in Minneapolis, there's not the same outrage. It doesn't get called terrorism. It doesn't get a flag waved in half mass. And so kind of it's important that we look at how the state, you know, and the media as an arm of the state reinforces this and allows this. And just the kind of world that we're living in where things are going to continue to get escalated. Things are going to continue more people are going to get shot by white supremacists. And the only threat you're going to hear about is about the resistance, about the protesters, about these false rumors of anarchists doing something on Halloween and masks. You're going to hear rhetoric and BS like that. But in reality, while that's being pushed, these white militias, these white people, like let's just call them white people with money and weapons and are going to continue to be able to just kill and get away with it and have the Second Amendment protect them and have the police that they are friends with if they are not actually in also protect them. We can continue talking about these things as if they're isolated incidents and not recognize it for the white supremacist, violent country we live in. This is going to air Friday. You just celebrated Thanksgiving. <laughs> so let's not pretend like we don't know where we are and who these people are. Right. These people are just continuing the legacy of colonial violence, of white supremacist violence. And when you have those representatives, those openly organized, you know, white supremacist representatives like Trump encouraging this kind of and approving of this, then you're going to see we're going to see more emboldened acts. I mean, if the Charleston shooter wasn't enough of an emboldened act and that wasn't called terrorism and a U.S. senator was murdered. So really, like wherever 
people are on the hierarchy, it still doesn't qualify as terrorism if the shooter is a white person. And so we have all this fear about mass shootings and about fear-mongering about terrorism, but then we have this constant negating of like who is actually responsible for terrorism here in the United States and in instigating terror and exporting terror abroad. You know, it's the CEOs of these weapons manufacturers, it's these police unions organizing to defend their privileges from being taken away, and it's this failure for people to actively recognize that police privilege protects terrorism and protects murderers. And the state will, you know, seek out community leaders to kind of prepare and contain outrage um, rather than seeking out the white supremacists and rooting out. Because, I mean, if you look historically, the KKK and various neo-Nazi Minutemen reactionary white hate groups that have been proven to use violence and murder in obtaining their goals of white supremacy, they haven't been as systematically denied resources and attacked and policed and repressed and destroyed as groups like the Black Panthers or like the MOVE organization that was bombed, you know, in the city that they lived in by the state and withheld resources. So the state has not proven itself to ever be a mediator of white supremacy, but has always been a facilitator of it. So there were people reporting that white supremacists were following their protests in Minneapolis days before this happened. But no one is paying attention to the the due diligence and the intelligence and the labor being done by these organizers, these community members that are forced to become organizers just to try to keep their community safe, who are using what little resources that they have available to them to try to get the word out there and report on their conditions. And the police are systematically on the other side, continuing to facilitate terrorism. I don't know where that leaves us, but this is just one example of so many police shootings that happen daily and communities that are forced to really kind of reckon with that terrorism and then be terrorized for even recognizing it and wanting to keep their community safe. And you see the police use the tactic of pushing back video releases like they are for Quan McDonald in Chicago as a way to try to hopefully let the energy die off and also give them time to prepare for whatever sort of reaction or resistance they think might be met with the video release. And I feel like when this happened before, like there's so many people, to be honest, that where this happens, where it's really hard to keep up with and really triggering. But from before, and it was like, oh, the video is going to get released. They were shot in their car, point blank, in the head. The video was horrible. There wasn't any reaction, really, afterwards. It's interesting because it's just, it's like waiting for the police video to get released or waiting for the cop to not get indicted or whatever it's it's all just bs at this point so it's weird because it's like i'm torn because i think that video releases i don't know it's like you know i don't i haven't seen a video of france i haven't seen one white body dead i haven't seen a dead kid i haven't seen you know you're not gonna see that i feel like we're at this point in society in our in america specifically where we know what we're living in 
we know what kind of government we have ruling us, we're kind of just in this sort of standstill. I don't know what that means or what that looks like, but I just feel like we're going to continue having these conversations where we report about how black people are getting shot and killed and nothing's happening. I feel like while social media has created an entire different currency in terms of how we come to recognize what's happening through developing trends, like we should not have to popularize racism death culture to have it recognized myself I don't I don't always think that there's good way I don't think there's any good options especially as a non-black person like by spreading imagery and news about terrorism against the black community you know that also normalizes it so but saying nothing also normalizes it so I kind of am in a place where you know, I recognize that I can't, I'm not doing enough and it's none of it is right because it shouldn't be happening to begin with. You know, we don't, we don't need oppressed communities to demonstrate their pain for like people to care. And we need to start going to the source of naming it, what it is, what it's always been, white supremacist terrorism, recognizing and listening and there's not really an option for people to really arm themselves. Like, is, is this just going to keep happening? Like, I don't... But I don't even know if, like, arming is, like... Right. I honestly think we just need riots. I think it has to be layered. I think there's going to be people who are going to use other tactics. You need riots for the same reason why... To destabilize, you yeah. know? And so I think a lot of people kind of look down on rioting, and they're like, oh, you know, that's not real resistance. That's not getting serious. But rioting get some distracted. If there was riots going off in Los Angeles a lot of time, you can't control it. And I think that's the value of creating anarchy in your own community, not in other people's communities, in your own community. Yeah. So, so then you can have the layered attacks, you know, then you can have the hacktivists also disrupting the institutions and their systems. And then you can also have whoever wants to do the other stuff, do it too. And it's going to be less heat on them because guess what? Walgreens is on fire. Yeah, I definitely think that rioting is just looked at as misbehaving, even in activist culture, even in resistance culture. You know, it is about completely messing with their idea of the standard economy that requires people to go day to day. It's just like, if there is white supremacist terrorism, like, why are people still having to go day to day and act like that's not what's happening? Like, there should be mass disruption. Some things are going to have to burn. And I do think that what scares me is that it seems like there's like a limitation in terms of civil disobedience and resistance and how the state targets and incarcerates and will do mass arrests. Right when the state does that, there are other community mechanisms that come in to kind of reinforce that repression by the state. And so we just need to stop reinforcing the repression by the state. We need to account for that. That's going to happen so that it's not just celebrity activists getting bailed out or, you know, being noticed when there is a rupture or a riot, maximize that potential in anticipation of it. Use that distraction. If we know that the United States, kind of like what you were saying earlier about like taking advantage of the state being at war. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still the theory behind bring the war home. 
you look at just Los Angeles as like a sample of resistance for say like the last five years and you look at what happens, there's like some sort of uprising and immediately there's a co-optation and a push by organizations and career activists to co-opt it and to persuade it into a more like controlled protesting. So if there was an uprising happening the week before or the night before, then the next week there'll be a planned protest and maybe um, they'll do some CD or something like that. And we know that's going to happen. And if you look at it like throughout the years, it's been harder for the groups to co-opt, um, which is good. But I think uh, different groups are being created and learning the language of to say we're horizontalists or not call themselves an org and call themselves a movement. And they've learned how to camouflage themselves. So it may be harder to see when the co-opting is happening. But, I mean, that's very dangerous. Co-optation is so dangerous. And, yeah, when there's mass arrests happening, the next thing that needs to happen isn't a planned protest that, you know, doing some CD where people are going to get bailed out. No, it needs to be, like, another uprising. Even more people out on the streets continue escalating the situation. I think this is when it becomes layered. You know, you have Anonymous who's like, oh, we're going to go after ISIS. It's so it's so ridiculous. And so they're like, okay, we're going to go after ISIS, right? And notice how the state isn't saying anything to them. Someone in the UN said, oh, maybe you should leave this to the professionals. But I mean, they're openly talking about using illegal hacking techniques and there's no sort of repercussions being faced with them because I honestly believe that Anonymous has been compromised. And, you know, Anonymous was like heavily attacked by the state because they were doing effective hacktivism and they were heavily infiltrated and a lot of those people turned, you know, were forced to turn informants and that's just the reality. Since we know that this type of police terrorism and American extremism in general is continuing all the time, then we shouldn't have to wait for another individual to be murdered to do these things. There should be. And I was thinking about it like the last three years during Thanksgiving, there's been like something intense happening because I remember the last three years specifically, I've been torn because there's been like an uprising or something. Like last year, there was an uprising around Thanksgiving. So I found that kind of interesting because it's around the time when people have time off. Maybe more people would be rebelling if we had an infrastructure to take care of you, take care of each other, really. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, preventing co-optation, preventing the... There's got to be a word. Because it's like, it is organizing, but it's like the control organizing that's happening. It isn't like... The narrative. Right. The narrative of organizing, really, or something. But, I mean, I don't know how many times we can keep talking about it. Because that's what I feel like we do every time there's an uprising is we're like, okay, okay, like, step one, combat apologism of the police, name white supremacism, but also, like, naming it on social media, like, isn't really enough. Combating it in your spaces, in your workplaces, and your families, that's important. But we just need to prepare long term to develop an infrastructure where we can give each other water and food and all these things. There is, like, a... A fluctuation where like people do want to come out and rebel but there is like a so much fear around what happens when you do that and it's not unsubstantiated fear because what people are fighting is already violence and being targeted and whether they fight or not whether they come out in the streets or not i really just believe no one wants to be first 
on the dance floor. Like, no one... Because it's weird, because what sparks it, right? Every summer we were having something. And, like, I'm speaking specifically about L.A. And, like, in L.A., nothing really happened. But L.A. is interesting, too, because when you think about Black Cat Revolt, and that happened before Stonewall, no one really knows about what happened at Black Cat. And I feel like... The same thing happens a lot here now in L.A. There'll be something, there'll be uprisings in L.A. and you just really don't hear about it. And I feel that's on purpose because if the rest of the country heard what was happening in L.A., it might spread a little faster. It might spread a little more. But it's just interesting because it's like, I don't know what brings people out. I know, like, for me, what brings me out is other people being out in a non-organized, planned way. Or even if someone makes a call out for a location but I know that there's no org leading it, then I'll come out. But there hasn't been that. There there hasn't. Everything has been some planned group protest that ends at a time. I can't do that. It kills my soul. It makes me sad. And, and I feel like that's the point of it. And so I just won't do it. I do feel like there are some authority complexes within movements, the planned protest movement, that it's not really happening unless someone official calls for a protest and then by then like the spirit is completely dulled speaking of the black cat there was recently last week it was a trans day of remembrance speaking of you know violence and terrorism like based on gender like uh, trans women of color are under attack by the police as well as um, every day in in the public um in their lives by their intimate partners. So there was actually a co-optation effort by the police to have a trans walk of remembrance. And there were local trans community organizing against the co-optation by police. And really just the push to kind of be recognized by oppressors in the hopes that they will scale back or mediate their violence in terms of the police literally initiating this march and it was held um, on western hollywood and it was a march to the black cat which is no longer its original form it doesn't have its original owners or it's not committed to being a safe space for trans people or queer people it's just been gentrified and like redone and renovated but the police appropriated that history even though yeah it was a police it was a riot against police terrorism you know that happened last week and just to to know all the ways that the police terrorize, all the ways that communities are having to defend themselves and combat not just the violence, but like the fact that their their own narrative of existence is being reshaped by the oppressor, by the police. In terms of like protesting, you know, I sometimes feel like some sort of type of way of betrayal when I'm not out all the time at these pre-planned protests, but they time and time again are about supporting one org, not an entire movement, not empowerment for all people to rise up against oppression. I mean, I've been thinking like, sometimes I'm just so frustrated. I'm like, do I just need to get a sign and stand on the corner by myself, like with like five people? Like, is that, we could probably disrupt more in a small micro group going corner <laughs> to corner, shutting down streets temporarily and then bouncing without some sort of supreme agenda that in the end, these orgs are just going to limit people. Like in the end, that's what orgs do because it's about maintaining the credibility of the organization. So I think we need to maybe, quote unquote, draw some lines between 
What does it mean to organize yourself, to self-organize, to re-examine and explore autonomy in your resistance versus to organize with a capital O in an organization? And then the relationship between those dynamics, it seems like if we're not going to explore these ruptures and these riots and maximize their potential in terms of provoking resistance, we have to recognize that these acts of white supremacist terrorism are speaking to other white supremacists and are going to embolden them to act and to replicate those tactics. So whether we are doing that in terms of a resistance, anti-oppression, anti-white supremacy, I just think that's going to happen whether we're preparing and destabilizing there's a lot of focus on how to build the perfect movement or the perfect organization versus like just encouraging each other to disrupt and confuse and pressure the current state apparatus to make a mistake, make mistakes, to continue making mistakes as they make mistakes, to discredit them like this government. Why are we voting for this government when this is what's happening every day? There's no social contract. The social contract is with white people. The state will organize to protect the interests of white people. So really, to me, it doesn't make sense why any non-white people would be voting. I understand the allure that you might gain more agency if you vote and get the certain right amount of people or policies in power. But that has been the narrative and it hasn't happened. And even if it has been working, it's not working now. And so... Is this not the time to withdraw our support of this structure and say, well, we're going to create something else? And as cliche as it sounds, like the word resistance, but I don't know, instead of voting for the government, we need to join the resistance. We need to make a larger resistance. We need to be open about there being a resistance to this government, to this culture, to this white supremacy that is claiming people's lives through the police and through vigilantes, white supremacists that are accepted by the society. Before you mentioned the perfect movement or trying to build towards that, it makes me think a lot about how there is this focus, especially in leftism, on like building the mass movement. And it's almost there's this promise. If you just do this, if you just sell our newspapers, if you just be our street soldiers, and then, you know, we'll work one day to build this mass movement and one day we'll do the revolution, the Workers' Party will revolt. But, like, to me, that's the same as kind of religion and Christianity is, like, if you do these things, then one day, you know, there'll be a heaven and in the afterlife, then we'll be fine. I don't want to work to build the legacy of some white man. It's theory, political theory. Like, I want my liberation now. And it has to be an emphasis on self-empowering and autonomy and horizontalism that is so anti-hierarchy that co-optation wouldn't even be able to happen, that infiltration wouldn't even be able to, you know, be successful. And I just don't completely see people there yet. And I don't really see that being talked about as much as it used to. You know, and Occupy with all its things, I felt like that was a cool thing about it was that horizontalism was really talked about, even if it was only in vain. That isn't something that we're really, like, discussing, you know. Hierarchy is a lot of the reasons why the resistance is still kind of in this push and pull. It's these community leaders talking to the cops. And I think that was really exciting about 
what happened in Chicago with the black youth rejecting the private meeting with the mayor. Because if that was in L.A., I don't think that would happen. You know, just real talk. Rejecting these private meetings, rejecting to talk to power, rejecting demands is signs of hope. And I'll say, just like in my personal opinion, like necessary tactics. You've been listening to On Resistance Radio. We had a discussion today about the current events, what's happening in terms of the community organizing as in a direct response to the murder of Jamar Clark and also what's happening in Chicago around the release of footage and the charging of an officer in the murder of Laquan McDonald and the general discussion on white supremacist terrorism. I just wanted to say before we close the show completely, it's just interesting to think like this time last year, there was a whole week of resistance in L.A. I mean, around the country and how easily it got co-opted and where we are now one year later um, and where that group that co-opted is now comparably. It's just really interesting when you think about things in that perspective. Going back to what you were saying about no one wants to be the first ones on the dance floor, the hypothetical that everyone used was like when they shoot protesters. That just happened. To me, my thought last night was, are we going to be in the street tomorrow? You'd think, you would hope, right, that people didn't even escalate. People were just occupying a police station, having a physical presence, like having a visible, constant public presence for 10 days. And they were shot. And what are we going to do? What's going to happen? feel like the bar has been raised. There's a planned protest <laughs> that's being organized in New York. Right, and so here come <laughs> the planned protests, and where are the riots? You've been listening on Resistance Radio. Uh, we're on the air every Friday at 7.30, except for the first Friday of the month. Yesterday was the colonial holiday of Thanksgiving. Much gratitude towards you, but no respect to the colonization of this land. You can check us out on Facebook. Listen to our past shows on soundcloud.com slash on dash resistance. You can email us any commentary (laughs) at onresistanceradio at gmail.com. See you in the streets.